future. <laughs> There's consequences for not acting that way. So we're going to be talking about Elijah today. Um, but we're going to start in the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, which is not in 1 Kings, where we find the story of Elijah, but it's, it's important, so we're going to start there. And I want to read this to you. Let's put up that first slide, Ethan. This is from Leviticus because, you know, I want to force you guys to read Leviticus sometimes because I know nobody wants to. <laughs> okay, so it's in verse 3 it says, If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops, and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting, and you'll eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. And now, that is a really important promise from God. It's really important in Israel because of how dependent they were on the weather patterns, okay, and the annual rains. Because if there's a drought that happens one year, and we're all aware of the rains this year, right, and what's going on in California, it's the opposite of a drought, right? But they've had a drought, and then it's really incredibly bad and dangerous when you're just inundated with floods and lots of water. But if there's a drought in Israel, places that you are very much dependent on this annual weather patterns and annual rain, if there's no rain, it's not just that there's a problem that year. It's this trickle-down effect for the years to come after that, for many following years. So in verse 6 it says, I'll grant peace in the land, and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. I find that really interesting. Your threshing will continue until your grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting. You'll eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. I will grant peace in the land, and you will, lay, you will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. And so one of the things I'd like to stop and point out here is that one of the byproducts of following God's rules, his law, and I know that's a hard word. We don't want to hear the word rules, but if you follow God's rules, his commands, his laws, one of the byproducts is that we have peace with each other. If we would follow these things, if we would live these things out in obedience, then we have peace. And we've touched on this before, but what this means is that your relationship with God between you and him this way, how real that is and how, how focused you are on it in a meaningful way, has a direct correlation and effect this way. Does that make sense? With other people. So the vertical relationship you have with God affects this horizontal relationship you have with others. It's just one more Bible passage, one more example amongst many other passages where it points that out. Like, when you say, let me just say this more explicitly, if you say this or if you have this mentality in your mind as an American Christian, it's just me and God. It's just me and God. That's, what's, that's what matters. It's just me and Jesus. God actually says, that's not true. What happens here between you and me has a direct correlation that happens here with other people. And actually, the inverse is true as well. What happens between you and other people has a direct correlation between you and God. So you need to deal with that. There you go. <laughs> if you haven't been thinking that way. Practically speaking, that means stuff like this. If my faith is just between me and Jesus, if I have that mentality, then it doesn't matter if I don't gather with God's people each week. Right? Because I can go meet with God on my own. And God says, that's not true. In fact, there's no such thing as a singular Christian in the Bible. Every time the word Christian is printed in the biblical text, it's plural. You can't be a Christian by yourself. You need other Christians. It, if you think it's just your faith is just between you and Jesus, 
It doesn't matter if I don't serve, right? No, God says it does matter. It doesn't matter if I don't give and be generous. No, God says it does matter. It doesn't matter if I don't pray with and for others. No, God says it does matter. It doesn't matter if I don't bear other people's burdens. God says, yeah, it does matter. It doesn't matter if I don't get to know a group of smaller Christians around the table really well so that I can really, truly, deeply do life together with people who are going to test me and sharpen me and encourage me and take care of me and vice versa because it's just between me and God. So it doesn't matter if I do that. God says, yeah, it does matter. That mentality is just between me and Jesus. God says that's not true. So we all need to deal with that. So this passage we just read from Leviticus, if we follow God's rules, laws, and decrees, it says right after that, if five, it says five can chase a hundred, and five hundred can chase a thousand, stuff like that. The implication is that if we learn to live his way, what can we do together as a people? The impact we have can be multiplied exponentially. That's the implication. But in order to do that, we have to follow God's rules, laws, and decrees. And what that means today with the passage we're going to cover is that we need to be like Elijah. And we need to really appreciate what it's like to be Elijah. So before we get to talking about him, I want to give you a Hebrew word that's really important in the text today. And that is the word kana. Say kana. Kana. Okay? Say it again. Kana. Okay. You have to say it like that. Kana. Not like kana. All right. Yeah, it's kind of like a growl. How many of you guys remember we, we uh, covered the word haga and we said haga, and that means growl. All right. You have to growl like a lion over the text. You have to, you have to be, you want to tear into it like a lion attacking a gazelle. That's the word for haga. Kana means desire. And there was a group of people who took this idea and this word and they called themselves the Kanaim. And they lived in the region of, in your Bible, it says the word Cana. That's how we read it in English, Cana. But in Hebrew, it's Cana. And I imagine it was called, the place was called Cana, desire. And they said it like that because I like to imagine the people that way. And it's actually, it's actually, Cana, Cana is the place where Jesus performed his first miracle, turning water into wine. Well, eventually there's this group of people called, the, they call themselves the Canaim, the Canaim, and today we call them zealots in the Bible. And if you know anything about the zealots and the zealot movement around the time of Jesus, there were some zealots in Jesus' 12 disciples and they were expecting the Messiah to come and conquer all of their enemies. And they, they really believed that God had told them to be zealots, even to the point of physical violence with people. And so some zealots, we have record of some zealots walking through a crowd, right? They're walking through a crowd and they have a knife in their tunic and they walk by a Roman soldier. And they just go, stick them right in the rib. And if you know anything about our bodies, you can be stabbed and not know it for a few minutes. You can even walk 100 yards and not know it and then fall down dead. They would do this because they believed that God was a jealous God. They believed God had called them to that kind of life. 
They believed that they were following God and obeying him by doing that. And Jesus comes along and he says this to these guys. If you live by the sword, you will what? You'll die by the sword. And they do. They do. If you want to do a little research later, you can go Google Masada, and you will find a whole group of zealots who end up dying, and the Romans kill them. Here's an example for, for context of this. Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments for this word kana. Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments, God says, I, the Lord your God, am a kana God. A kana God. And we translate it as what? Jealous, which is actually a terrible translation. It's a terrible translation because for us, right now, jealous has this negative, controlling, overpowering connotation to it. And that's not what kana means. That's not what it means when we say God is a jealous God in the original text there. When God says he's jealous, he says, I have kana for you. I have a fierce desire for you. Remember, kana means desire. Kana. And I can't stress this enough because this is Elijah. When we get to this story of Elijah, he is full of kana. And if you're going to understand Elijah, you've got to understand kana. Here's a little bit more background and before we get to Elijah. You have to jump a few pages back to the book of Joshua. In 1406 B.C., Joshua and the Israelites, they cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And the first major story that happens when they cross, in, the first major story that happens when they cross into the Promised Land is when they take the city of Jericho. And we talked a lot about this before, but a blessing, a blessing in the Jewish mind is an active agent. What this means is when you speak a blessing into someone's life, if you were living in the time of the Old Testament and someone spoke a blessing into your life, they believe that you were obligating the power of God to fulfill that blessing that you spoke. You're obligating God to do this thing that you said. So when you speak blessing on somebody, you are essentially unleashing the power of God into their life. That's what they believed. That's probably the best way to say it. You spoke a blessing on me or I speak going on you, then I am obligating God and, and unleashing the power of God in that person's life, which is really cool, right? That's pretty cool when you think about it that way. I want to bless you with this. I'm unleashing the power of God in your life to accomplish this thing. It's an active agent. The only problem is that the same mindset they had about blessings was the same mindset they had about curses, right? And then you think about it in the same way. You're like, if I spoke a curse on you, oh my gosh. And that's why I want you to check out Joshua. Joshua chapter 6, verse 26 and 27 says, at that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. And you'll see how this ties into Elijah in a minute. Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations, and at the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So Joshua pronounces this curse on whoever tries to rebuild the city of Jericho, right? And what's the curse? It's very specific. 
when he, whoever this person is, when he starts construction, he's going to lose his oldest son. And when he finishes the construction, he's going to lose his youngest son. That is a heavy, heavy curse, right? Now, King Ahab reigns later in 8, that was in 1406 B.C. This is about 550 years later in 874. He reigns from 874 to 853 B.C. And I say those things because these are real people. These are real people, real time, real place. You go to the Smithsonian and look at their archives, they're going to tell you, yeah, this happened. We have record of these people. It's not just contained in your Bible as this set apart, apart from the world history scene. This happened. 1 Kings 16, 29 through 34. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. So Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those, than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, who we talked about last week, right? He considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. <clears throat> and remember what he did. Remember what Jeroboam did? He's the one. So the kingdom got split in two, north and, northern and southern kingdom. And Jeroboam is the one who's like, man, I don't want Rehoboam, Solomon's son, to be the king. And so I'm going to make it easy for the people. They all, have to go to, they all have to go to Jerusalem to worship God. I'm just going to make golden calves, because that always goes over well, Right? And I'm going to put one in the north and one in the south, and I'm going to tell the people, look, you can worship on Zoom. I mean, you can worship up there or down there and not come to church. <laughs> okay. I just, that's not in my notes. I'm just, it just comes out, you guys, sometimes. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, one, he sets up these golden calves, one in the north, one in the south. Why did he do that? We said he did that because he's insecure. He is scared to lose power. So one of our conclusions with this was when we make decisions out of fear, do we make good decisions? No. Which is like almost half of the like, advertisements we get on TV or the sales stuff that we see, right? Do this now or you'll lose out. They try to make you afraid that you're going to miss the deal, right? Or something like that. So do this now or you'll miss out. It's always, it's always better to be patient. Most of the time. So here's what it says, continuing on in this text. Uh, verse uh, 31. But he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to worship Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Now look at this. Verse 34. In Ahab's time... Hiel of Bethel rebuilt what? Jericho. He rebuilt it. Is this going to go well for him? This is 550 years later. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. This is 550 years after the curse that Joshua pronounced. Seriously, this shut the front door, as my brother would say. Right? This is a thing. This happened. This tells us something. 
Namely, that God is a person who keeps his word. God keeps his word. And we can trust that, that God keeps his word. And that's really significant. Oral tradition tells us this. So we can't prove this because this is oral tradition that the Jewish people would pass, you know, pass down around the campfire, around the dinner table, about what's going on here. But oral tradition tells us that Hiel went to Ahab and said that the reason that my sons have died is because of the curse of Joshua. And then Ahab said, no, it's not. Absolutely not. No, it's not. And let me tell you why I know it isn't. Because I've been living like this, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord more than anyone else. And I think everything I do, everything the people who did evil before me is trivial. I do it even worse. And I've been doing it my whole life. And nothing has happened to me. So boom, deal with that, heal. The promise was that if I didn't serve, he's like, look, I've been living this way my whole life. And God made a promise that if we weren't going to keep his decrees and laws and, and all that, if we weren't going to live in obedience to him, then God wouldn't send rain. And look, it's been raining all these years. And I've been this bad person. So who cares, Heel? You're telling me it's because of this curse? God doesn't really keep his word. But that's, that's okay. That's from the Jewish oral tradition. Stories that were passed down by word of mouth and then eventually written down, but not included in the canon of Orthodox Scripture in your Old Testament. Now, in the very next chapter, 1 Kings 17, God tells Elijah to go talk to Ahab. Right? And he tells Elijah, and I'm going to honor whatever you say. Blessings or curses, active agency, unleashing the power of God, right? And what does Elijah say? What does he say? He says, it is not going to rain, <laughs> right? right? So why does he pick that, that curse from Joshua? It's an interesting little twist. Let's pick it up first, the story in chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe that's what you are if you're from Tishbe, a Tishbite, <laughs> said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the, Lord of the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. Hold on to that thought about the ravens. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now, I want you to think about this. When there's a drought in the country, any country, does the king suffer? What's that? No. Of course not. But the people do, right? Because... These people are living, you know, they're living hand to mouth. They're living paycheck to paycheck. But the king is not going to suffer. He's just going to tax the people more. Thing that, like, things never change, do they? <laughs> right? So the background here is that while this drought is happening, the whole thing with the ravens, Ahab, Ahab is the king, and he's just getting fatter. He's just living his life. He's secure in his, you know, opulent living. For three years, this goes on with a drought, okay? 
and the people are suffering. This is really interesting as well because this thing about the thing about the raven in the Jewish mind, the raven is always, always, always the raven is considered a thief. In lots of cultures, actually, but in the Jewish mind too, it represents a thief. So God kind of sets up this gentle reminder to Elijah, look, I'm going to honor what you say. And Elijah says this thing like, hey, it's not going to rain. And God's like, okay, I'm going to honor that. And I want you to go over to this place. And the raven's a thief, and the raven's going to bring you food. (laughs) Right? In other words, I want to remind you every single day that there's not rain, Elijah. You are robbing food from the people that I love. So it's not just King Ahab brought this upon himself. It's that the prophet is like, I'm stubborn, and I'm, going to, I'm, I'm not going to relent, right? Because if he can bring the curse, he could take it away. He could say, okay, God, I want you to stop this. And God says he would honor it. It takes Elijah three and a half years to relent because he's super stubborn. And the point is that for three and a half years, the people starved. People were starving, and every day, Elijah had food brought to him by a raven that, that stole the food from who? The people, someone else. Literally stole the food and brought him food and meat, right? So finally, he's had enough. Also, the brook that he's drinking from finally dries up. He, he's finally had enough, and he, he's like, we're going to deal with this once and for all. And he goes to Ahab. And this is the story that everyone really loves. If you haven't heard it, it's like the showdown between the prophets of Baal and Ahab, right? And this whole thing going up on the mountain and setting up this altar and like, hey, if your God's real, do this, bring down fire. And if my God's real, I'm going to ask him to bring down fire. And we love this story, right? Because he's like, look, pour water, keep pouring water all over my altar. Keep pouring water all over it. And then he prays to God and this firebolt comes from heaven and just torches it, you know, type of thing. Here's, here's what happens in the story. Elijah said, this is 1 Kings 18, verse 15. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Which is pretty hilarious if you think about it. The one who is doing everything God said not to do is who? Ahab. He's the reason for the trouble. He tells the one who's following God that he's the problem. <laughs> right? That would never happen today. That would, you know. Um, verse 18. Elijah says, I've not made trouble for Israel. He replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. Bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. I want to show you what this looks like uh, on the screen here. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. This is a video from the, maybe, maybe I have to restart to get that going. You guys can keep doing that. They'll show you in a minute. There's a video from the, Mount of, at the top of Mount Carmel. But here's what you have to do. Um, to get all the way up to the top of Mount Carmel, it's 1,800 feet elevation. Okay? That's pretty significant rise. I know this. I didn't really know this. I knew this mentally. I know this now because my son and I, we hiked from east to west over the southern portion of the Olympics this last summer, 45 miles, and a lot of elevation change. 
with really heavy backpacks on. And I was like, every night, like, I wanted to do this. We both wanted to do it. I would say, people ask us, how was that? And I'm like, it was really good in a painful way. <laughs> you know, it, it, was, it hurt so bad, it was good, you know. <clears throat> Excuse me. 1,800-foot climb. And this helps, this helps us understand Elijah and the, and the Kana. You, you, when the video is ready, you guys can show it. Uh, he climbs all the way up this mountain. He sets up these 12 huge stones, which is, so he's climbed up there. Then he makes this, these 12 stones into an altar. Then he butchers a bull. No, it's over there. Okay. Anybody in here ever butchered a bull or even seen that happen? I mean, like, this is way back in the day where they're doing this by hand. So if you're a hunter and you've butchered, you've butchered a deer or something like that on the field to bring it home, this is a significant amount of work, is my point, right? Climbing the mountain, building the altar, butchering the bull. And then he runs all the way back down the hill after this thing happens, and he slaughters the prophets of Baal, okay? And then he runs back up the mountain to wait for the rain to come because he's like, look, I've done this. Now the rain should come, right? When the rain comes, he runs back down the mountain. So 1,800 feet, 1,800 feet, 1,800 feet. And in between, he's doing all this other stuff, right? After he runs back down the mountain, when the rain comes, he runs 18 miles. 18 miles. And he beats Ahab's chariot to where Ahab's going. This guy, Elijah, is full of kana, a fierce passion for God and his word. He is a prophet, and he takes, his, he takes this seriously. He is the man. He's got a fire in his bones. And you can't really understand this story and the depths of his commitment until you at least try to put yourself in his shoes mentally. So all these people are gathered here, and there's going to be this huge moment. I want you to picture this. Maybe he was standing, let's put that next picture up if we can. The next picture, this is the still picture of, on the top of Mount Carmel. This is where they think this happened, okay? He says to the people in 1 Kings 18, how long, all the Jewish people are there, they're there too, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And you guys must have read this already because we asked you to read this before you come. Right? Maybe you didn't. It's kind of like school. Sorry. Okay? We want you to do your homework because if you read this before you come, you'll be more informed for our discussion afterwards and that kind of thing too. And that's why we invested in these books. Take them. Read them. Um... You are doing it perfectly right now, by the way. He says this to them. How long will you waver? Follow God, basically. And what does the scripture say that the people said? You're doing it right now. They said nothing. <laughs> they said nothing. Good job. You got that from your homework, right? Yeah. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it in the wood but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God and I'll call in the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God, which is Elijah. That's like, Kana, bring it on, right? 
The one who sends fire, that is who is God. Now, it's interesting. If you look at the next story, this happens. The fire comes, right? Bad guys are beaten. What does Elijah want to do next? Elijah wants to run away and die. (laughs) I'm serious. It says he wants to go. He's like, just, I want to die. And we're all like, wait, what? Like, what? You just... You were just victorious. You did what God said. What's going on here? It's really interesting. I want to give you the pattern here. Moses, if you think back to Moses, he's at the base of Mount Sinai. He sets up 12 stones, an altar. He butchers a bull. He says, you need to serve God. Will you do it? And what do the people say? They say, we will serve the Lord. Joshua, when they cross into the promised land, he sets up 12 stones. He butchers a bull. And what do the people say? We will serve the Lord. Elijah, in this story, he takes 12 stones, he builds an altar, slaughters a bull, and what, do, what does he expect the people to say? We will serve the Lord. But he gets crickets. Chirp, chirp, chirp. Nothing. Nothing. He's like, are you kidding me? He's like, ah! I am the only one left. There is no one who loves you like I do, God. That's his mentality. No one. And Elijah ends up having to learn this lesson. It's probably really good for you and I to learn as well. God takes him from there and says, go to Sinai. Go to Sinai. Which we go, okay, yeah, go to Sinai. Which is way, way far away. It's a journey. It's 180 miles away through the desert. 180 miles by foot through the desert. This angel comes to him, gives him food and water before he goes on this journey. But the implication is that after he gets that food and water from the angel, that he doesn't have any more food and water until he gets there. And it says that he is on this journey for 40 days and 40 nights. And we've heard that before in the scriptures. To get to this place called Sinai or Mount Horeb, where God revealed himself to to Moses, which is interesting because Moses, when he's at Mount Sinai, twice when he's in the presence of God, he fasts for 40 days and nights. So then you have this going on with Elijah, right? And we know when Jesus comes on the scene before he starts his ministry, after he's baptized, he goes out into the desert and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And then his ministry begins I want to show you this photo, this picture of the the cave at Mount Horeb where they think Elijah was in it looking out. So God says, go here to Mount Sinai. So Elijah goes to Sinai, he gets in the cave, and God says, I'm going to show you something. And so this fire goes by, and then this wind goes by, and then this big powerful earthquake happens. But God is not there. And Elijah's like, what are you doing, God? Why aren't you in those things? And then it says that God shows up. And in in the English translation, it says he shows up in what? A still, small voice. Which if some of you have been around me long enough, you're going to know what I'm going to say next. That's actually a terrible translation. (laughs) It's actually a terrible translation. Most of us, when we hear that, we just imagine kind of like this whispering. You know, something like that. And maybe it was, but let me tell you what the translation says. It literally says a quiet, thin sound. 
In Hebrew, it's kol damama dacha. The first part, kol, means voice. We find these moments in Scripture where the Word of God comes to someone. The Word of God comes to Abraham and ushers him outside his tent to count the stars in Genesis 15. The Word of God appears and stands before Samuel in 1 Samuel 13. The Word of God comes to Jeremiah and touches him on the mouth. In Jeremiah 1, the Word of God appears in John 1.14 in your New Testament when John writes these words, the Word became flesh. When the Word of God is finally and truly revealed in the person of Jesus at his birth, and there's this still small voice. We have this word of God, this kol damama dacha, this kol or voice. It's not present. It says the voice is not present in the wind. It's not present in the earthquake. It's not present in the fire. But it's present in this thin sound. It says that God shows up in this intimate, quiet, profound Love speak. That's where God was. So you see, what Elijah had to learn and what we have to learn is we want, we want God, we want him to show up in the Kana. We want him to show up there in this fierce, jealous display of love. We want him to show up in a fireball from heaven in our lives. That's how we want God to show up and fix things, put things back together, make wrongs right. But God's presence was with Elijah in this still, small voice, just like Jesus doesn't show up as a flaming fireball ready to conquer the world. He shows up as a baby boy that's vulnerable with a still small voice of his own. We want God to show up in the Kana, right? But the way that God's love most truly shows up in the world is in the form of an embrace. God says, I'm here. I love you. And that's the best way for us to show the love of God to one another as well. And it has to be, because if it isn't, then, then nothing changes. Nothing changes if it's not this. I could say I love you and show up with this fierce passion, rah, you know, kana. But that's not what it is. Here's what I mean by that. If we only do that, nothing changes. What did the people do after Elijah did everything he did and asked God to send fire. The fireball came down from heaven. It burned up this water-covered, water-soaked altar. Water's filling the ditches around the altar. It's just covered in water. Burns it up, totally torches and disintegrates the altar and the sacrifice. And what did the people say? Nothing. They weren't even like, wow, 
They weren't even like, cool. <laughs> we, have the, we have this, the account is they said nothing. And the point is this, fire from heaven doesn't change anyone. It doesn't. And this is why I think Jesus came the way he did. Because if, we, if God could show up and reveal himself, and we think, well, if you could just show yourself to me, if you could just show yourself to me, then I would believe. God knows better than that. We have these stories where he's like, look, I showed myself. Crickets. <laughs> right? But love changes everything. Love changes everything. Fierce, jealous kana doesn't change the world forever. It might change it for a little bit, but love, that last, still, quiet, look you in the eye and forgive you. Put your best interests before my own. That will change the world. By the way, when Jesus, when he comes to the people who've been, they have been butchered for like 500 years when he comes on the scene. They've been butchered by the Greeks, they've been butchered by the Romans, and then they've been butchered by their own kin, Herod himself. Jesus comes into that reality and he says, do you want to know how to bring the kingdom crashing into heaven? Every time he talks about the kingdom, just go read the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, forgive them. Forgive them, love them. Don't curse your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Love them. He doesn't say, show up with a fierce, jealous passion. He doubles down on the still, small voice aspect of God's love because it's how he came in the beginning, right? As a baby boy. And it's how he goes out in the end when he gives his life for you and me. Now, for many of us, we want that fire of Elijah. And I, don't, I get that. I totally get that. I want that. Lots of people have come to me over the years and they've said, I want to I wanna believe in God. Don't. <laughs> right? I want to have this passion for God. But I don't. How do I get that passion? I prayed to God to have that passion, but I don't have it. Why don't I have this passion? but I feel like I should have it. I want that passion, but I don't have it. The thing is, is I think we talk to God as if the fire, the passion, is like a Christmas present. Just gift me this Christmas present of passion that I want in my life. And we pray and we expect to receive this present and open it up and be like, thank you, God, I got my passion. You know, you gave it to me like a Christmas present. But here's what the scriptures teach. Jeremiah 23, 29, another prophet, he says, it says, Is not my word a fire? My word is a fire. And the question is, if you want the fire of God, then become a person of the word. And I know, like, you're like, seriously, you're going to boil this down to the whole lesson is about read your Bible? Kind of. Yeah. Uh, if 
you want to become a person of the word, of the scriptures, of the text, that's, that's where it's at. That's where the fire is. That's where the passion comes from. Chewing this up. Putting it in you. Because this is where you're going to find Jesus. This is where you're going to find everything in the scriptures. Everything in the scriptures is reaching and yearning and longing and pointing towards Jesus, who is the word of God. And so I urge you to get in this text. We have, we're halfway through this story series, this chronological telling of the scriptural narrative. It's going to end right at Easter time. If you put yourself in this text, the passion and the fire will come the more that you dig into it. It's not something you can manufacture. You can't pray for God, just give me this, you know. There's no, in fact, there's no partnership, really. If, you've, if you take the stance where you say something like, Lord, if you're real, if you're real, make me want to follow you. <laughs> if you're real, make me want to follow you. And have passion for you. We would never say it that way, but that, let's be honest, that's what, I, that's what we mean when we pray these types of things. If you want to have a fire for God in your life, you need to adopt a posture of listening like Elijah finally did. He finally did after Cana didn't work for all that, all that time. To put ourselves in a place where we hear God's voice, and that means to actually read the text and absorb it, and put it in your life. Put it in your life and make it who you are. Make it who you are. Do you expect to have passion because God gives it to you like a Christmas present? Or do you have passion because the Word is in you? The Word is in you. And the Word is living, and it's active, and it's real. And the, and the only Word... The, only, the world can only give you kanah, but only the true loving voice and presence of Jesus in your life can build up, can stoke a fire in you that'll roar up, and it'll give you kanah when you need it. But it has to do with putting this still small voice, the word of God, in you all the time and making it who you are. And I think every single one of us wants that. We want that passion. But then what do we do with that passion that God has built up in us? What do we do with it? And please hear me here. You're... you're your passion is best expressed not by forcing Jesus down people's throats. Standing on a corner with a bullhorn and a sandwich board in your hand and yelling at people, uh, those are the times when I get the most angry, passionate in a wrong way, <laughs> when I see Christians doing that. That does not work. It has never worked. It doesn't work when you're in a digital space online either, telling people that they're guilty and hellfire and brimstone. Your passion is best expressed in the same way that Jesus expressed it, when you embrace people, when you forgive them, and when you love them really well. Not just with words, but in tangible ways. So, it lets them know that there's more when you do that with people, it lets them know that there's more value to them than the world has ever given them, than the world has ever shown them. You can't go to the world for the things that only God can give. And so when you adopt the posture of Jesus and you live that out towards other people, 
and you do it consistently, that's something people are starved for, they're thirsty for, a real, loving, caring person who gives them the love of God. No strings attached. We all want to be a part of a community like that. So I would just take it up a notch and tell you, be that community. Be that type of community, and then we will become that community. You'll be a part of it, and you watch what God does. And so we're going to enter into our little table groups now. And if you're not with anybody at your table group, I encourage you to, like, join up, spread yourselves out. If you're new with us, and if there's someone else new at your table, you don't have to concentrate on these questions I'm going to put up here. You can just get to know each other. You might want to dabble in one of them or something like that. This is not forced friendship, forced, like, in your face, like what I just said. This is just, let's discuss what we talked about because the best sermon is the one that we preach together. And discipleship happens in these circles, not just in rows. And so if you're like, oh, I want that passion. I'm so empty. I'm dry. Then it's time to get in the text. And that's where the love of God will fill you up and the fire and the passion will come over time. I know, look, I know that this is a big book and there's not any pictures. (laughs) Okay? But there's real life in here. Okay? There's real life in here. And it'll change you over time. Maybe you're like Jeremiah, where you feel like you have this fire in your bones and you just got to let it out. But the way that you talk with people, the way that you present that fire is like this growl in their face where they're just really put off or afraid of you. And that doesn't convey God's love to them at all. Maybe you need to have that conversation with God. So I'm going to put these up here and they're going to be up here. We'll try and fix it up there. Um, but I'm going to leave that with you. And in a moment, I'm going to give you like five minutes, five, five six, seven minutes, something like that, to just hang out and talk. And, uh, and then we're going to have our communion together. We'll take that all together when John comes. And, um, and then we will hang out and have coffee and that kind of thing if you want to stick around for a little while. Would you pray with me?